to be part of something that no one has done before is, is sort of a rare opportunity in, in a career. And um, we, we take that opportunity and the responsibility very seriously. Do you know what the single most active thread on the Tinnitus Talk forum is about? Well, it's about the company that's featured in this very episode. I'm Hazel, and you're listening to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. Our previous episode was a very positive and exciting interview with Thanos Tsonopoulos, who's working on a drug to quieten tinnitus. I'd highly recommend you listen to it if you haven't already done so. And today is another episode on hearing regeneration. The company we spoke to, Frequency Therapeutics, is perhaps closer than anyone to getting a drug to market that promises to restore some of our lost hearing. We spoke with the chief development officer of the company, Carl LaBelle. He explained how their drug FX322, currently under development, is meant to work and what results they've seen so far. It's quite a technical episode. Because we had the pleasure of speaking with an executive of the company, these are obviously busy people, so we really only had one hour to interview him, which meant we didn't have time to ask a lot of clarification questions or repeat certain parts. So for that reason, we chose to do a little in-house debrief instead which you will hear after the main interview, where we try to explain some of the more technical concepts in simple terms. So if you get confused at any point, hopefully the debrief will help you out. I had some help doing this interview. I felt a little bit out of my depth with the technical nature of the topic. And at the same time, we have a strong contingent on the Tinnitus Talk forum of members who follow frequency very closely and know a lot more about the topic than I do. So we invited two of those members to help us out. You'll hear Jackson, aka Mr. Brightside614 on the forum, as my co-interviewer, and FGG, who during the debrief will explain some of the more technical concepts to you. I want to thank Frequency Therapeutics for being so forthcoming and arranging this talk, in particular Suzanne Day, with whom we must have exchanged dozens of emails, and of course Carl himself. And now, without further ado, let's listen to Carl LaBelle. Welcome, Carl. Thank you, Hazel. It's great to be here with you and the listeners. And I'm, we're also joined by Jackson Jones. Jackson is an esteemed member of the Tinnitus Talk online community, who I would say very avidly follows all the developments around frequency therapeutics. Welcome, Jackson. Thank you. Yes, we are very happy to have you on here. Our pleasure. Yeah, so Carl, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the uh, the Tinnitus Talk community has for quite a few years actually been following Frequency Therapeutics very closely. We have a, a thread on the, on the forum, which has, uh, I think, 9,000 posts and nearly a million views. So it's one of our most active threads. Uh, I'm not sure if you were aware that you were being um, followed that closely by the tinnitus community. It's great to hear. I think um, we're aware that activity in the area is certainly picking up along with the interest. And as like us and others, if we're able to advance these programs um, you know, through development, I think that's just going to get even greater. Yeah, so we have a lot of people who are very anxious to hear from you guys and get more detail on FX322. 
Um, we got a lot of requests to have you on the podcast, so we're very grateful that you're able to spare some time for us. Um, Carl, maybe you could just start by giving our listeners a general introduction to to frequency therapeutics and yourself as well. What's your background and how did you first get interested in, in this line of work? Yeah, happy to. So uh, Frequency was founded in 2014, and it was um, based on technology that was jointly developed um, in the labs of Dr. Bob Langer at MIT and Dr. Jeff Karp at Harvard. And they were um, interested in um, understanding uh, what are the signals uh, that are involved in regenerative tissues, and, and in particular, highly regenerative tissues. And so they're first focus was in the small intestine, which is very active. Um, the lining of our small intestines turns over roughly every four to five days. So it's one of the more highly regenerative and restorative tissues that we have. And when they began to look at the signals that were involved in um, the tissue being able to do that, they identified that there were um, stem-like cells. Well, these are called LGR5 positive cells in the small intestine. And those cells are very active and they're dividing and replicating. And that was what enabled the tissue to turn over um, so rapidly. Well, as part of their work, they uncovered the fact that those same cells are actually present in the cochlea, um, kind of like close cousins of those cells, uh, but the signals are not there. And so um, those cells are essentially quiescent. They're quiet. They're, they, they provide some support, but they they don't do the work of what they're initially designed to do, which is to form sensory hair cells. And so that um, really formed the foundation of frequency. And since then, we've been working on understanding those signals and then trying to uh, create a drug that can turn those cells on to make um, new sensory hair cells. So that's sort of the background and frequency. And I'm a drug developer by training. Um, been in the biotech industry for about 30 years or so and spent the bulk of my career um, at a company on the West Coast, well, based on the West Coast called Amgen. And that's where I learned how to really develop drugs. And I learned about clinical development um, and got an um, opportunity to work in a number of different disease settings. So Amgen was formed on the basis of recombinant proteins like erythropoietin, and so they started treating conditions like anemia, um, neutropenia, which is a loss of white blood cells. And then I got involved in diabetes and um, various uh, cancer indications. So that's where I, I learned the trade, if you will. And it, it really is a trade, understanding how to um, sort through this labyrinth of drug development, work with uh, health authorities around the world. And in the late 2000s, um, I decided to leave Amgen. I was looking for a smaller company. And I got involved in the ear. A colleague of mine connected me to a company in San Diego, and they asked me to join as their chief scientific officer. And that company was called Autonomy. And they're still working in the ear, um, looking at balance disorders, and they're looking at hearing loss as well. So I spent eight years, seven, eight years there and really learned a lot about the ear and a lot about the conditions of the ear and how to do um, clinical trials in this space. And so um, I, I was able to get a drug approved for ear infections for children that were getting tympanostomy tubes 
And then I decided, feels like it's time to retire. So I relocated from the West Coast to the Northeast. And I, I wasn't looking to come back to work. I, I wanted to spend my time with my grandson kayaking and just kind of hang out with the family. And uh, But I did want to keep my brain a little bit sharp. And so Bob Langer, of all people, one of the co-founders, connected me to David Lucchino, who's the CEO of Frequency. And David invited me to come by and just chat and just talk about, you know, our common area, uh, interest in the area. And he uh, asked me if I would be willing to consult for them. And in particular, he wanted me to review the documents that they were going to send to FDA uh, to support the IND. And I, I said, great, that sounds like a wonderful idea. And I looked at those documents and read the data. This is all, a lot of this is proprietary. And once I saw that, I said to myself, oh dear, I think I've made a mistake retiring. So I had to come out of retirement. <laughs> and then I joined uh, Frequency full-time about two and a half years ago. And we are just on the cusp of something truly remarkable, we think. Wow. So uh, it sounds like it was a good decision or, um, to to come back and has worked out well for both you and the company. Certainly. Um, you know, to, to be part of something that no one has done before is, is sort of a rare opportunity in, in a career. And um, we, we take that opportunity and the responsibility very seriously. And so, you know, we are unified as a team to try to advance this program forward as fast as we possibly can. And what is it that fascinates you so much about hearing in, in particular? Well, I think I, one doesn't have to look too far to um, know somebody that has some level of hearing dysfunction. My my mother has uh, bilateral hearing aids. Um, she had said to me once, um, I think she was still in her 70s, early 70s, and she said, um, I noticed that she was having a harder time hearing. And, and I said, Mom, what do you think about maybe going to get your hearing tested? And she said she wanted to take care of her eyes first. And then once she got her eyes taken care of, she would go take care of her ears. And the first day that they fitted her for hearing aids, um, there was a huge difference. She she was reconnected with us. She didn't feel as isolated. And that that struck me. Uh, and I, I I thought that that probably is more common than my own experience. And I think that that's, that's fairly common um, uh, as you look at individuals that have some, some loss of, of hearing function. And so you know, we, we think it's, we think this concept of hearing health is tremendously important. And there's a number of ways, um, that we want to help with that. And, and obviously we're focused on a hearing therapeutic, but, um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're strong supporters and we, and we think this is just a, a, a huge unmet medical need. And, and we're, we're glad to be kind of where we are right now, but want to go fast. And, and where does um, tinnitus factor into all of this? Is that something that you later sort of came to realize as an important part of the equation, or, or was it there from the beginning, that realization? It's always been a question mark um, for us. So um, tinnitus is a, is a difficult, you all know this, it's difficult to, to diagnose, and it's difficult to compare what one person's level of tinnitus is versus another. But to us, it would not be surprising to have an association with um, the loss of hearing function. And it's a common complaint that many people that have um, hearing loss, um, you know, have to deal with. And so um, we've imagined that it could be possible that, you know, our therapeutic FX322 is designed to restore these sensory hair cells. And 
we know the function of those hair cells. That they, they amplify, number one. But more importantly, we think, is they tune and they filter sound. And that tuning and filtering is, is really what can um, help one with the clarity of information, in particular, clarity of language and words. Um, but, but this tuning and filtering, we think, can, can sort of take out background noise or background signals that one may be perceiving. And so it's entirely possible that this could also end up being beneficial for, uh, for tinnitus as well. We don't have any data on that yet, but it certainly um, wouldn't surprise us if there was a, a, a potential benefit. So, so let's talk a bit um, about your drug under development for hearing regeneration, FX322. So I'll just kick off with a very general question, and, and then Jackson, feel free to jump in with more in-depth follow-up questions. So Carl, can you start by just providing a general introduction to FX322? How was it discovered, and what does it do? Yeah, that's a really great question and an important one to understand. So um, I mentioned my background in drug development. So oftentimes companies, when they're developing drugs, they'll start with one molecule. It's just easier to test one molecule, understand its dose, understand that what's the route and the schedule that one needs to give it by. Um, but this was one of the things that struck me when I first looked at the frequency data. I didn't appreciate this, but FX322 is really comprised of two molecules. And these two molecules are going after two of these pathways that um, control the, the uh, progenitor cells in the cochlea. One can't, we believe, one can't just use one drug to treat. We believe it has to be more than a drug. And it makes sense to us biologically because if one thinks about what these cells are doing, when we're in the third trimester uh, of our mother's wombs, um, that's when our hair cells are developing. And these progenitor cells, so these stem cells, are really active during that period. And these signals that I'm talking about are on. They're constantly on telling those stem cells to make more sensory hair cells, make outer hair cells, make inner hair cells, make sure that the neurocircuitry is connected. There are all these genes that are turned on at that point. But the moment we're born, those shut down. Those signals stop. And so this was the discovery, as I mentioned in the beginning, in the small intestine, now applied to the cochlea. And when you bring those signals back, these cells get activated. And so it requires these two small molecules to do it. We, we combine them into a formulation we deliver it locally to the ear. So our um, administration has to be given by an otolaryngologist or ear, nose, and throat specialist. Um, the intertympanic injection, as it's called, is a fairly straightforward procedure. Um, you can do it in an office-based setting under a little bit of topical anesthetic applied to the eardrum. And the, um, the ENT will bring a, a needle down the external canal, um, poke a small hole through the eardrum, and apply our material. And that takes uh, really only a few seconds to inject it. And then once done, uh, the individuals can, can sit up and, and be on their way. So, so the administration itself is a fairly straightforward procedure, but we think it's important because getting drugs to the ear is not an easy thing to do. You can't take a pill and have a therapeutic get to the ear. It's just not, it's just not selective enough. Um, it's a protected space in the body. 
uh, you, you can't get drug concentrations high enough. So this local procedure that we use, um, where we formulate our two drugs uh, into a polymer, and here's here's one of the tricks that we use. That polymer turns to a gel once you've injected it into the. Now we're in the middle ear, okay. And when that gelation occurs, that that gives us enough residence time in the middle ear for our drugs to diffuse into the cochlea. And we've we've established that um, uh, through a number of preclinical efforts that we've looked at. So, so again, our belief is you have to use w- more than one molecule. We believe that these two molecules do something very special uh, that we've been able to establish in our preclinical program. And now for the first time, we've identified this um, hearing, what we're calling a hearing restoration signal in uh, humans that have really chronic hearing loss. Jackson, I'm sure this raises more questions for you. Feel free. Yeah. um, I actually was going to touch on a couple of those things later on uh, with with some of the questions. Um, But yeah, we're we're very excited that we're getting a local delivery of of the drug. Um, We've long thought on the tinnitus podcast, usually when when somebody comes down with tinnitus, they really only have um, a few uh, crucial hours to respond to it, maybe up to 48, where, um, you know, you either get a high dose of oral prednisone to uh, mediate the inflammation or you get, um, if you have some really competent medical practitioners, you get a intratympanic uh, dexamethasone injection and that can that can sometimes mitigate whatever tinnitus may uh, be of consequence after the hearing trauma or, or what have you. And uh, so, so we're very, we're, that's part of the reason why I'm excited about FX322 is that it's a local delivery. There are some issues with uh, systemic delivery in terms of circulating to the ear as, as you've pointed to. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just a, a, a point of definitely emphasis and, and optimism for me. It's it's interesting that you, you know, the whole concept of the use of steroids, um, they've never been shown to work. There's not, never really been a prospective, well-controlled, randomized, placebo-controlled, um, double-blinded clinical trial done with steroids where you're taking individuals that perhaps they're, they're going to experience sudden hearing loss or they're having some sort of an acoustic trauma and then they have tinnitus that comes along with that. No one has conducted a trial, as I described, to really show that they work. And so today, it's it's frontline therapy. It's all off-label, but there's there's nothing else. And so they don't believe um, that uh, steroids will do any harm. So so they deliver them and, and they cross their fingers. And everyone uses a different protocol. There's no standardization of the dose of, of uh, the steroids, the, the, the steroid itself, do you use methylprednisolone? Do you use dexamethasone? Um, how often do you give it? How much do you give? These, these are just question marks. And so, you know, I, I, again, I, we're taking a classical drug development approach here, but in the ear. And, and you know, we, we really feel strongly about these, these fundamental principles of when you're trying to develop a drug to determine um, the following. Does my drug get there? That's the most basic question. And if it does get there, how much gets there, right? And then lastly, if you know you can get drug there and you know you can get enough there, then does it do something? So here, 
I look at those three basic questions about whether one can advance a drug therapeutic. And I think we've ticked all three of those boxes. And so, and, and I just, I, I bring that up just because I want to emphasize um, a couple of recent bits of data that we have um, disclosed. And so this first question about, does it get there? Measuring drug levels in the cochlea, it's really hard to do, right? The only instance where you can do it where I've seen it done, is in uh, subjects that are going to get a cochlear implant. And uh, just before the electrode, uh, the, the typical approach today is, is, is inserting the electrode through the round window membrane and then advancing it uh, a, a significant way uh, towards the apical portion of the cochlea. Well, we were aware of a group in Hanover, Germany, who's probably one of the world's busiest cochlear implant centers. And what, what makes this uh, group unique is that every patient that comes in for an implant, just before they put the electrode in, they collect a sample of perilymph. And it's a, it's a very specific technique, very careful technique that they have to do. But they're able to collect a small volume of that fluid. And their, their research project is, um, it's a proteomic analysis program. They're looking at what proteins are expressed within the perilymph and how does one associate that with whatever the inner ear disorder might be of that particular um, uh, cochlear implant subject. So we approached the Hanover group and we, we asked them, do you think that you could administer FX322 in the operating room? And then just before you're going to insert the electrode, or just when you're going to collect a perilymph sample, we would like to take that sample and analyze it for drug levels. So it, this is the combination of uh, two groups, our therapeutic and their um, expertise in cochlear implantation and collecting uh, cochlear fluid samples. So we embarked on a study. It's, we started it uh, last year. And um, uh, recently we shared uh, the results publicly. So we dosed seven subjects. Every subject got FX322. And about 60 to 75 minutes roughly later into the surgery, uh, that's the point where they're about to insert the electrode, they collected perilymph. And so we were able to analyze that perilymph sample for our two drugs that make up FX322. And what we're able to conclude from the results of this study is that both of our drugs uh, are, are detectable in the cochlea. And then there's a, a, a big question is, where do they go in the cochlea, right? We're, we're measuring them in just in one spot. So uh, what one has to do is we, we use a computer simulation model that we developed with a collaborator uh, based on some preclinical work. And if you, if you take the levels that we derived from the human cochlear implant study and you, you impute them into this computer model, the model can predict what the distribution and the time course of concentration will look like in the cochlea. And so when we did that, the model predicts for us that we are able to achieve pharmacologically active levels in the human cochlea. So those are the two pieces. And then the third piece is we haven't talked about this, our phase one data yet, but that phase one data is really the signal. It's the hearing restoration signal that we've identified. So we now believe we can get our drug there through a very simple office-based procedure, an intratympanic injection, 
The drug levels that are in the cochlea are uh, predicted to be pharmacologically active. And based on our phase one study that we did in 2018, we see this remarkable um, improvement in, in particular in speech intelligibility in many subjects. So if you can check those three boxes, it really um, indicates that we're going in the right direction. And we're really happy about those recent results. And as I said, couldn't be more enthusiastic about moving forward on the program. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'd, I'd never heard um, any of that background to, I, I suppose that was preclinical when you uh, measured the perilymph concentration of the drug. Yeah, we, we've done a lot of work in multiple species to, to characterize um, how the drug behaves within the cochlea. And then you can almost do by allometric scaling, you can almost predict then where the human will be because the human cochlea is typically larger than most of the species that we work in. Right. And you mentioned something about your uh, your phase one clinical trials. And uh, I'd, I'd like to just um, start by touching on some of the improvements in hearing that you've you've measured um, because usually phase one is is for um, safety but you've managed to secure some efficacy data as well it seems yeah we we um you know we we called it a safety study we um, because the two drugs that make up fx322 one of them is a very well known generic drug called a valpro, sodium valproate it's valproic acid it's sometimes it's called depacon or depacote depends on the brand versus the unbranded name um, and that's a drug that's been used to treat um, status epilepticus. Sometimes it's been used for migraines. So there's a lot of safety data available uh, with systemic dosing, with IV and oral dosing with that drug. Now, we're only taking a tiny amount and putting it into the ear. But we liked the concept of having a generic, well-characterized drug as one of our molecules. The other molecule is a proprietary molecule. And, and this is a molecule that um, goes after a specific pathway. And as I said earlier, it's the combination of these uh, two agents uh, that, that we think is important. But since we were taking a new molecule um, that had never been tested in humans before, um, we were taking it into the clinic for the first time, we, we wanted to, to conduct a very careful, rigorous, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. And as you say, most people don't do that for phase ones. But we thought it was important just to just to um, uh, give us confidence on the safety side. So we designed this study, and we conducted it in um, San Antonio, Texas. And we chose that location because we were able to identify three private ENT practices in the San Antonio area that were interested in participating with us and felt that they could recruit subjects from their patient populations. And that was important because. Um, one of the designs of the study was we had a requirement where patients had to be characterized as being stable. And we determined that stable meant that there couldn't be any significant changes to your audiogram for at least six months. So usually um, individuals that are part of these practices, they'll typically come in once a year, sometimes twice a year to get their hearing tested. That, that population is very motivated for hearing health. Uh, and, and want to be monitored carefully. So we recruited from that group. And again, they had to have a historical audiogram. And could be, there could be no changes for a minimum of six months. So then the next component of the design was this double-blind uh, placebo control. So we were interested in recruiting two different groups of hearing loss individuals. 
Um, firstly, those that had histories, medical histories that were consistent with an exposure, lots of exposure to noise. So in general, um, it was usually um, occupational noise exposure. The San Antonio area has a heavy um, ex-military population. And uh, so a number of those individuals got exposed uh, to noise uh, through, through those means. And then the other group of individuals that were part of the study were uh, what are called idiopathic sudden sensory neural. So this is a loss of hearing. Um, no one knows why. Um, sometimes people believe it may be viral or it could be vascular, but no one really truly under, no, understands the reason. But what we know is that it's associated with a loss of hair cells if it's permanent, not the acute phase, but if it's permanent, if it doesn't return. So that group of permanent sensory neural hearing loss patients is what we took into the study. And again, no one knew who was getting what. The, the subjects didn't know what they were being dosed with. The physicians doing the injections didn't know what they were giving. The audiologists doing the tests didn't know what the subjects had received. And importantly, we didn't know. We can't know. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a critical design feature of, uh, of doing double-blind placebo controls. We can have no influence whatsoever on the study. We have to be completely independent from, from the activities at our trial sites. Um, one last feature that we included uh, in the study design is we dosed only one ear. So some subjects that come in have hearing loss in both ears, but we uh, typically would dose the worst hearing ear as long as it would qualify according to the requirements. And we were looking at mild to moderately severe subjects. Uh, based, this would be based on their pure tone averages. Um, the reason we chose that group is, if you imagine, had we gone into a more severe patient uh, setting, and if, we, if our drugs were to have a safety issue, it might be difficult to see potential worsening of hearing. So we, we selected a group that had um, still existing um, hearing function. And again, this mild to moderately severe category is what we decided. So just to, just to reemphasize these, these points of control, because I'm going to come back to them when we talk about the results, stable patients for at least six months, placebo-controlled, double-blind, and we only dose one ear, but we monitor both ears. So individuals were given a single injection. We monitored them carefully. Uh, for safety. And then two weeks later, they came back for their first hearing test. And then every month thereafter. So they received one injection and then they, they were essentially monitored for three total months. Um, and we were blinded. We were monitoring the data just to just make sure that there was no issues with safety. And we did notice that there were several individuals that were showing improvements in one of their measures of speech intelligibility. And this in particular, this was the word recognition test. So the way that we do that test is uh, through headphones, and we, we were always testing one ear at a time. And in this study, we used a 50-word list of uh, all monosyllabic English words. And it's a recorded voice that's played at a certain loudness. Um, we, 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 we set that loudness. And the, the voice will say, say the word chore, like C-H-O-R-E. And we're listening to hear if the subject gets it correct. And if they get it correct, we record that. If they get it wrong, we actually record the wrong word. So this example of chore, you could imagine an individual might hear it as shore, 
or S-H-O-R-E. That's really, there's really important information in the word that they may have gotten wrong. And so, and we analyze down to that level. So uh, that, that measure appears to be very sensitive. And uh, as I said, as we were monitoring the data, we noticed that there were several individuals that were showing improvements in, in one ear, and we, we knew it was the treated ear. We just didn't know what they had received because we were all blinded to treatment. Well, when we uh, completed the study and analyzed the data and we broke the blind, lo and behold, the only improvements that we observed uh, looking at the word recognition measure or speech intelligibility was in the ears treated with FX322. And in fact, there were four patients, four ears treated that had at least a doubling in their word scores, which none of us had ever seen before. I mean, we, we've shown this data to the world's experts in this field, and no one has seen ears do this before. And so the question was, okay, well, how, how can we convince ourselves that this may be a hearing signal? Well, I'll come back and emphasize, we, we know that we were looking at stable patients, so there was no fluctuation as they were coming into the study. We only saw the improvement in ears that were treated with FX322. Those improvements were not just statistically significant, but clinically meaningful improvements. And another component is, since we were double-blinded, no placebo ear had any improvements. And then the last component is no untreated ear had these kinds of improvements. So there, there were many sort of controls built into the design. And we, we believe that what this data indicates to us is, is two things. Firstly, it's the first evidence that using FX322, the first uh, evidence with a potential hearing restoration therapeutic, that you can improve the clarity of sound or improve the intelligibility to a subject, which, which means the most to them. And secondly, the, the fact that there's no placebo effect, uh, I'll kind of go back to my drug development heritage here. Um, when you do trials, you're always wondering what, what your placebo phenomenon is going to look like. When individuals participate in placebo-controlled trials, everyone hopes they got drug. And that hope um, changes you. It changes your focus. It can change your sort of general well-being. Um, you may you may um, uh, subjectively decide to change things in your lives uh, because you, you're hopeful that you got drug. And some of those changes can have a bearing on the measures that we build into clinical trials. What's unique about this is if you give somebody placebo in an ear, they can't think that they got drug and suddenly hear better. The, the, um, the metaphor would be, you know, when you go for a vision test and you squint your eyes, you can see a little better because squinting is changing the shape of your eye. Um, you can't squint your ears. You can't squint your ears and suddenly hear better. That's just not a phenomenon that we're able to do. So we, we think that the results from this, again, small phase one safety trial are truly remarkable and give us great confidence that we have, for the first time, shown a, a signal, a hearing signal in individuals that basically had permanent hearing loss in that ear. Yeah, it's very impressive. And uh, we're, we're glad you went to the length that you did to validate the drug. Um, obviously, the, yeah, the placebo effect is a very 
is a very well-known psychological phenomenon, uh, but less applicable in very, very finite, very, you know, like you said, you can't uh, squint your ears, you can't strain harder to hear something. So it's nice to have that validity. We're going we're gonna to move on. Um, so we, we've seen that you've amended your outcome measures somewhat for your phase two trial to include an evaluation of tinnitus using the tinnitus functional index. Further, you've expanded your audiometric testing to evaluate FX322's effect on ultra-high frequency hearing. Are these new outcome measures in response to something that you had found in your phase one clinical trials? Well, as I, as I mentioned before, when we were talking about the relationship between if one could restore uh, outer hair cells that function as filters and tuners, if you could restore those, then it's one could create the hypothesis that you might also um, provide a benefit to tinnitus. So we don't have any data, but but there could be a biologic rationale, and that, and that's for that reason we've decided to include the the TFI, which is the um, the FDA's preferred instrument for determining the effect of uh, tinnitus on daily activities. So that's the first component. Uh, secondly, the extended high frequency range um, was was really based on data. Part of it was preclinical data when we were analyzing the distribution of our drug through a number of different species. And then this, um, the, the data that I described from our collaboration with our um, team in, in Hanover, Germany, in the cochlear implant subjects, those two um, projects, when combined, uh, essentially uh, lead us to um, have uh, the understanding that our drugs, when they're injected interdependently, primarily concentrate in the highest frequency range. Now, I can't say exactly what that frequency range, but it would be in the higher range. And for that reason, we included measuring um, up from 9,000 to 16,000 hertz. Now, that's we believe that's important. And if, if one kind of looks at the history of traditional acquired sensory neural hearing loss, you start losing your hearing from the highest frequencies first because that's where sound comes in, hits those high frequencies first, and then eventually makes its way to the lower range. Um, so in this case, <clears throat> we think that um, you know, our drug is, is concentrated in the right place. Um, we, we do, however, uh, have, a, have a big effort in uh, drug delivery. Uh, we, we are aware of technologies that one can use to kind of modulate the distribution of drugs through the cochlea, and that's something that we are looking at very carefully. But but we think for a first attempt here at a, at a hearing restoration therapeutic, we really, we really like the properties that uh, FX322 is showing us. Yeah, we, we were very interested because um, a lot of people um, who experience tinnitus have that very high-pitched kind of um, ring, which we, we assume would be associated with, with high, ultra high frequency hearing loss or at the very least high frequency hearing loss. Um, so we, we had sort of suspected that since its concentration is, is best towards um, uh, the, uh, the base of the cochlea, which corresponds to the higher frequencies, we, we had suspected that it, it might have a profound effect on tinnitus, but um, were there any anecdotes or patient testimonials that, that kind of corroborate our theory? Well, we again, we don't have data. Um, certainly, there's anecdotal reports. Uh, as, as patients have come back and visited with the ENTs 
uh, when they've had conversations with them about how they're doing, some of them have offered that they've had improvements in, in tinnitus, but there's nothing that we can quantitate there. Um, but again, it, 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 it's, it adds to the excitement of the, of the opportunity. And, uh, in your, in your comments about the extended high frequency range, you know, we haven't spoken too much about one of the other measures that we used in the phase one study was the words and noise test. So this really gets to the real world setting that um, many of us struggle with. I have uh, high frequency hearing loss in one of my ears, and I I have to adjust and accommodate for it when I'm, uh, well, I'm certainly not in restaurants these days, but if one is in a public setting and there's noise in the background, um, it's really hard. It's hard, harder to hear. It's the hardest test for our subjects in our trial. And there's a lot of important information in that high frequency range. So, you know, the way we test for this is uh, this, this words and noise test or the win test. Um, when subjects have the headphones on, uh, it, what happens is we bring in through the headphones uh, background noise uh, in the form of multi-talker babble. So it's, in our case, we use uh, it's six voices all talking at the same time, but you can't distinguish what uh, one of the voices is saying. You just hear six individuals talking. And then we bring the words in and again, say the word chore, but with multi-talker babble in the background. So it's a, it really tries to replicate the real world setting. And, and we think that can be an incredibly exciting measure for us. Uh, we did see a hint of a signal in our first trial. Um, it wasn't statistically significant, but we were encouraged uh, by the pattern that we observed that there were similarities between the quiet background test, the word rec test, and the words and noise test. All this lines up for a therapeutic that is providing what we think to be the most important thing, which is intelligibility. Um, our, our chief medical officer here, uh, he has said to me, you know, when you think about a individual coming into their doctor's office, they don't, the first thing they, they, they don't state as a, as a complaint, oh, uh, doctor, I lost 10 dB uh, in my 8,000 hertz range. <laughs> they don't know that. But what they complain about is, I have to turn the television up louder. I can't hear my family member from the other room. Those are the things that matter. And that's why we think the intelligibility measures are so crucial to understanding how the drug works. That's interesting. I uh, I have a question later on about it, but I guess we can just address it now. So you think that the increases in speech intelligibility in a noisy background, albeit they uh, not clinically significant, you said, but um, still improved upon, you think that's more a product of restoring the high frequency, ultra high frequencies rather than a potential cochlear synaptopathy um, that this drug also may address only in areas where the the hair cell is is actively destroyed. Um, but um, at least on the forums, it's understood that the words and noise test is is sometimes a test of cochlear synaptopathy, um, where where the the nerve itself is having issues, um, sort of interpreting the signal. But rather, it seems that, that you think it's more a product of uh, loss in the high-frequency, ultra-high frequencies. Well, it could be a mix, actually. And so if it's a loss of hair cells in the, in the extended high-frequency range, that would be something more direct to how we believe FX322 works. But remember when we were talking earlier about 
what happens during the third trimester is, is these progenitor cells or these stem-like, these are pre-programmed stem cells, and they're active and they're on and they're replicating and they're forming new hair cells. Um, when that happens, there's a lot of genes that are turned on because because when you when these new cells form, they have to be connected, right? So you have these axonal projections and these afferent nerve fibers that have to kind of lead to spiral ganglion. I mean, those all those connections have to be made, and making those connections are under the form of a number of genes, and we know those genes are active in development when we're when we've been in our third trimester. We know they're active. So if we're able to activate them with FX322, then one could see it's possible that you might be able to provide support to uh, uh, synaptic connections, uh, neuronal survival, and uh, neuronal support. So it's, it's possible it could be a combination of those. Um, it wouldn't be the first drug, if it gets approved, where one didn't fully understand the mechanism of action. But... Um, you know, uh, the, there are a lot of interesting opportunities as we continue to study the biology. So you you mentioned the mechanism of action, which we suppose currently that it, it's predicated on the the support cell population in the inner ear. You mentioned the LGR five positive support cells. Is there any concern as to uh, the native population of support cells being a determining factor as to whether FX322 will be able to be efficacious, especially in people with with more uh, devastation in that area in, in cases of more severe trauma? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, obviously, that we believe the target for the drugs is the progenitor cell or supporting cell. So it has to be there. And as you say, there could be certain conditions where those are damaged. Um, or they're, they're no longer intact. Um, there's no question that one could imagine that in older individuals that may have uh, cardiovascular abnormalities or other comorbidities, um, one could uh, imagine having that result in sort of a flattening of the epithelium within the, the inner ear. And, and that could be difficult to access those progenitors. So um, I, I think that when one takes a step back, though, and looks at um, sensory neurohearing loss as a whole, you know, we think it represents a, a good 90% of the population of individuals uh, with, with uh, uh, sensory neurohearing loss. And we've done a lot of work looking at uh, temporal bone sections of individuals that donated their temporal bones to science. And uh, we have a lot of information on what their audiograms look like and what their inner ear looks like. And the vast majority of those sections, one can observe the presence of the progenitor cells. So we think, yes, there may be a small percentage of individuals that um, their, their progenitor cells are, are no longer functional or intact that may not be candidates for FX322, but we think the vast majority would. That's very exciting to hear, and I'm sure all of our listeners <laughs> very much appreciate that kind of optimism because there's a there's a lot of worry uh, concerning something that it's so not well understood that um, they they worry that they might be in that that minority and they don't know how large of a portion that minority is. So I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. 
could you could you talk about the range of frequencies briefly that that FX three twenty two is looking to cover? Is there any um, is there any aims in the future uh, regarding its level of penetration or or the the frequencies uh, it aims to restore, possibly lower than the the high frequencies that it's currently being measured at? Well, as we talked about, the current trial is measuring from 250 hertz all the way to 16,000 hertz. And the other design component of the phase 2A study that's running is comparing different numbers of injections. So we have one group that gets a single injection of FX322, and then there are two other cohorts of of subjects. Um, One group gets two injections, and then there's a third group that actually gets four injections of FX322, and each of these injections are spaced one week apart. So when we think about, you know, what, how might that translate in the cochlea? So if you could imagine you do an intertympanic injection and the drugs diffuse into the cochlea and there's a wave of both of the drugs kind of rolling through a certain range of the cochlea and then they get eliminated. And we, we, based on our work, we know that that's going to be mostly in the highest frequency range. Then a week later, they come back and they get another injection of FX322. And it's possible that that now second wave of drug may not look identical to the first wave. Maybe it hits 10% more progenitors, or maybe it gets to a lower frequency. And then you come in with yet a third and yet a fourth injection. So, so we don't understand this yet because that's really difficult to model preclinically. But the current study is designed to address that question, is do you get greater benefit with more injections of FX322? compared to um, placebo group. That's very interesting that uh, you mentioned that. That's actually another one of my follow-ups is is regarding the uh, issue of continuously better returns on uh, upon administration. Do you suppose that that has to do, I, I don't know, we, there's, a, there's some information um, regarding its effect on support cells. And it was in your JP Morgan Q&A that was published in um, March 20, or it was a corporate overview in in March 2020 that uh, mentioned the asymmetric division of the the native uh, support cells, the LGR5 positive support cells. Um, But what interested me was was the term, uh, the asymmetric division. Does this sort of indicate that it could split into an active progenitor cell in addition to possibly multiplying the support cell itself, and it, and could that be the the mechanism behind um, potentially continuous returns on the drug? Quick question. Uh, so the way, if I recall that presentation by my colleague, uh, Dr. Luce, um, the way that we think about this is that when the signal comes in, and in, in this case, the signal that we're giving is FX322, uh, you have now taken a um, quiescent or a dormant progenitor cell. And then, you know, they, they provide support and they, they communicate and they provide nourishment and such. Uh, but that that's not what they do in development, obviously. So as the signal comes in, you, you, we, we believe what we're doing is we're coaxing them back one step in their development cycle. So we take them back to a bipotent stage of development. And that signal to go back is you you suddenly now activate the pathways that you need and all the genes now are starting to turn on that you want. And and that first signal we believe to be this asymmetric division. 
So you're forming now a new daughter um, progenitor cell, which is crucial. And then importantly, a new sensory hair cell. And that sensory hair cell could be an outer, could be an inner hair cell. It just, it's whatever's missing. That's how we believe it's sort of programmed because there tends to be a one-to-one relationship. Every, every hair cell has their sort of partner progenitor cell. This, this uh, mechanism that we believe that takes place is unique and different from that that others have tried when they're using small, a single small molecule, or sometimes they're using uh, gene therapy. And what those programs have tried to do is take a progenitor cell, and it's a process that we, we call transdifferentiation. You, you're taking a supporting cell, progenitor cell, and turning it into a hair cell. You're making it want to become a hair cell. The problem is it can't be a fully functional hair cell because you haven't turned the right genes on. And the other problem is you've exhausted now your progenitor pool. That that progenitor won't be replicated, won't be, it won't be replaced by the asymmetric division process that we believe uh, one needs. And we believe that's important because that's the way that nature intended it to happen. That's exactly what happens during development. So we think it's we think it's a good approach to take. We think so far since we've had a very favorable safety profile in our clinical trials and our preclinical program to support that, um, it's it's the it's the right way to do it, and it's a it's a well tolerated way to do it. Um, but different. Others, others have different approaches. And, you know, we, we want others to succeed in this field. It's, there's just isn't going to be one approach. Uh, but we, we have strong belief in, in the approach that we're taking. And we do too. Um, especially me. I've been fanboy for FX322 for a while now. And we, we realized the difference between basically creating the birth, a, a whole new cell, um, that, that isn't retrofitted, um, through, uh, sort of different approaches from from Audion, which which may deplete the the native cell population. Which, so you suppose that FX three twenty two doesn't appear to do so. It doesn't appear to deplete, nor nor could it um could it actually replicate more uh support cells. No, there's no. Uh, we've done a lot of other preclinical studies. They're the basic uh, toxicology studies that we have to do to support um, human clinical trials. And in none of those studies did we see any uh, indication that there might be an overgrowth or stimulating uh, too much um, asymmetric division. So that we've not seen any of that. And as I said, uh, no indications in our clinical trials to date that there would be any concern uh, with a safety signal. So uh, again, directionally, uh, this this looks very favorable to us. Okay, great to hear. When Dr. Luce was asked about cochlear synaptopathy during uh, Frequency's J.P. Morgan Q&A, he responded that it could treat cochlear synaptopathy in cases where regeneration occurred in, in the hair cell and its subsequently newly formed synapses. For clarification, is this in reference to the inner hair cell synapse with the spiral ganglion neurons, and is this subset of regeneration what is proposed to be behind those speech and, and noise improvements? I suppose we touched on that earlier, um, so we can just breeze by that. Yeah, I think I think that that just that explanation you gave Jackson would be a, would be a reasonable um, uh, hypothesis as to what might be happening. So, you know, in in, in the case of cochlear synaptopathy. You know, that we've heard it described as hidden hearing loss, but it's only hidden because people haven't been looking in the frequency range that we think one needs to look. 
And so I think there's a greater appreciation that we as a, as sort of living in this industrialized society, we're losing function in a region where no one really has spent much time looking. And I think the, the, the reason for that is primarily because hearing aids uh, in general can help one up to about 5,000, maybe 6,000 hertz. And then anything higher than that, uh, one tends to get a lot of distortion. And the other thing too is the hearing aids don't really help in a noisy background. So if, if one can imagine that you're restoring uh, hair cells uh, in the range, in this extended high frequency range, and some of those might be outer hair cells that are doing the filtering and the tuning. And then some may also be inner hair cells that are then giving now the, the sort of neuronal reconnection synapses and spiral ganglion. Then it's, it's almost like a, 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 a double header. Uh, so you know, we, we think that the, these measures are important and give different insights as to what might be happening biologically, but all pointing in the right direction, which is restoring intelligibility, which we think is just so crucial. Yeah. Th- has there been any pivot from like pure hearing restoration to the, the, the clarity and um, intelligibility? Is there any reason that there would be sort of a, a shift in goals towards covering what, the, what hearing aids aren't? Well, I, th- I think that we would expect that the data that we derive from these trials is going to kind of drive that direction. Um, our first experience on this first trial would indicate that the, the most sensitive signal was intelligibility. And we might have seen a few individuals that had um, 10 dB improvements at 8,000 hertz, um, a small number. Again, these would only be ears that were treated with FX322. But, but that's, that's the reason that we really want to look higher. It's possible that one could imagine seeing a signal, right, seeing better audibility in that extended high frequency range. And um, if that's the case, uh, it's like we talked about, it's, there's important information that's been neglected up there. And uh, when we talk about language and we talk about consonants like fricative consonants, these, these emit very high energy in the extended high frequency range. And, and if you've lost that function, you can't hear the definition and the clarity of those words. And, it, and now you have, you've got a, a, a challenge in communication. So, so it seems like, uh, it seems like that can be a, an incredibly powerful, uh, mechanism, if that's the case, that we think will translate to a very clear benefit. Um, but our, our studies, the data coming out of the study is going to tell us that. Yeah, we agree. We think that a lot of the, um, important information in those ultra high frequencies has kind of been glossed over in terms of, uh, typical measures of hearing, um, with most ENTs only testing up to eight kilohertz. And it, it's very difficult to even get a grip on where, where your losses are and if, if they're integral to, to your hearing. And, uh, so we're, so we're glad you're, you're investigating those avenues, uh, giving their, them their due diligence. Uh, however, there's there's been some confusion regarding the drug's efficacy on damaged but not destroyed hair cells. Uh, I don't know if you'd, this would be something you'd be able to speak to at this point, but could the drug affect damaged but still intact hair cells in, in the event that they weren't ultimately destroyed during whatever their, their traumatic event was? I think we don't know the answer to that. Um, our preclinical work 
the pharmacology model that we have used to uh, really kind of put FX322 to the test before we went into humans was a, a noise-induced model, pretty pretty severe trauma. Uh, and we did this work in mice. And and it uh, the damage in that model goes above and beyond the, the traditional sort of acquired sensory neural hearing loss. Uh, so if if that's evidence in, in such a severe model that we could restore function and we could restore hair cells, then, uh, you know, I think it opens the opportunity to to do uh, both of the uh, things that you were just describing. That's that's good to hear. Are there any um, thoughts on whether or not um, FX322 could be efficacious in populations with ototoxicity? We, we know from, let's say, medications, we know that you're testing on on noise induced right now is that is that just a strategic decision to kind of narrow your your focus on something that's that's more well understood or is there something about ototoxicity that scares you off from from including them in your your patient population no i think it's uh we want to study uh any etiology that would would be represented by acquired sensory neurohearing loss so right now while we're doing noise induced and idiopathic sudden sensory neural, I think we have a genuine interest in looking at age-related. Um, there's a population that we just refer to as pre-presbycusis. So it's younger than 65, but there's no evidence of noise um, exposure. Uh, and then the ototoxicity group, definitely. Uh, the two most common uh, uh, settings would be with uh, cancer chemotherapies, in particular cisplatin or platinum-based. Uh, and then the other one would be amino glycosides uh, that are associated with uh, quite a bit of, of of hearing loss too, with with such high doses given systemically, in, in particular in cystic fibrosis folks. So I, I think we want we're interested in in eventually looking at all of those uh, areas. Uh, great to hear. I'm sure all of our ototoxic induced folks are are definitely paying attention and. Uh, hanging on every word in some instances. So uh, we, we thank you for touching on that. Um, the, I'd also like to thank you um, for how like the, the brevity that you guys are, are acting with. You guys seem to have a sense of urgency about getting this to market. Um, and we got very excited when FX322 was granted fast track status by the FDA, in addition to Mr. Lucchino's mention on Bloomberg Radio that FX322 could be branded a breakthrough therapy by the FDA. This is something that we were tossing around for a few months and hearing him breathe it into fruition was was refreshing. And and how do such designations, such as breakthrough therapy, fast track status, affect the release timeline? And is there any possibility that FX322 could be granted conditional approval, which would allow you to skip, skip phase three in clinical trials? So the, the designation of getting fast track uh, status really allows us to have more interactions with FDA, which is important, especially at an early phase. And we have talked publicly about uh, on the basis of the phase 2A results, if those results are positive, we have every intention to uh, file a, a request for breakthrough designation. So what that, in general, what that allows one to do is, again, continue to have more and more interaction with this division of FDA. And there can be uh, a situation where, again, depending on what the data looks like, depending on the safety, one can kind of speed the process along even faster. At this time, we can't make any comments about whether uh, there would be 
you know, a concession for not having to go to a certain phase. I, I, right now, our plans are, you know, we're in kind of the middle phase of development, which is phase two. Um, we're assuming we're going to have to go to a pivotal phase, which would be phase three. And that would be the next phase we want to go to. And, and as I said, we're, we're working as hard and as fast as we possibly can. Yeah, we definitely see that. And we, we certainly appreciate it as a community to see that sense of urgency from you because there's, there's been a lot of um, excitement before in the community. I wasn't present for it because my onset was uh, last year, last summer. And, uh, but it, it seems that we've, <laughs> we've kind of been led along sometimes. And uh, in many cases, uh, the, the day never comes where we see something hit, um, some hit us that, that is actually um, very optimistic and efficacious for our very specific um, suffering. So um, we're glad to see somebody in the driver's seat. Yeah. We, what, what I've said publicly in other settings is, this is a partnership. Um, we can't do this by ourselves. So it, it's going to require a partnership clearly with um, the health authorities at FDA, but it requires a strong partnership with our investigators, our study participants, the site staff, the patient advocacy groups, the professional organizations. I mean, we're going to have to mobilize everything here to keep moving this forward. And so that's our intent is we want to partner with all of these key groups because uh, we can't do it by ourselves. Right, and uh, we see that you're you're making presentations all the time and and trying to to reach as many people as possible for these crucial partnerships. So again, we really thank you for that, um, Dr. Labelle. On your website, you explained that your current policy prohibits the use of expanded or compassionate use due to currently insufficient clinical data and lack of production resources. Is this policy something that could be reconsidered in an event where phase two trials reveal significant efficacy for their target populations? Yeah, I think our approach will be anytime there's a significant um, set of new data that comes in that helps us understand, uh, firstly and importantly, our position on expanded access is due to really, we don't fully feel that we've been able to characterize the safety profile of the drug yet. And so, uh, loosening uh, the, the the philosophy up of sharing drug is it, this is a hard time to do that. Uh, there's just uh, we don't understand the risk benefit profile fully just yet. So I think uh, the, the, that we are certainly interested once we get this next set of data uh, that we can revisit that based on what the what the profile looks like. Uh, but at this time, uh, we we have to stay with that policy. So you think this is something that will. Um possibly reveal itself uh, in, in your current phase of development? We think so, yes. That's that's excellent to hear because there, there are many in the community that, that would, I mean, they would die to get uh, a, a part of this, become a part of this trial. They died to <laughs> get their hands on this drug, me being one of them. Um, but a lot of us are excluded due to trial parameters, which are stringent for very good reason. Um, so, so we just really want everything to go as swimmingly as possible, if we can't um, participate them, uh, participate in them ourselves. So um, yeah, we're glad to hear optimism on all fronts. Um, so I'd I'd really like to thank you for joining us. Um, it's been a pleasure to sit down with you, and uh, thank you for making time. Uh, thank you, Hazel, for having me on the podcast. Yeah, you were a great addition, Jackson. I mean, I was I was leaning back 90% of the time and letting you guys chat. So it was a very easy job as podcast host. <laughs> well, we, uh, on behalf of Frequency, we appreciate the 
conversation that we got to have with you. Hopefully, um, the, the listeners will enjoy it as well. Um, and as I said, once we get our next uh, set of data, um, we're, we're optimistic and uh, we're hopeful that uh, that will continue to be positive and we'd love to come back and talk with you again. Oh, that would be great. We would be delighted to have you back, Carl. And uh, once again, on behalf of the Tinnitus Talk community, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and sharing so much valuable information and insights with us today. It's our pleasure. Hey there. Hope you're still listening and enjoyed the interview with Carl. Now, if you're interested, we have our debrief coming up where we will discuss our impressions of the interview and also explain or try to explain some of the more technical concepts that came up during the interview. Before that, I just want to state that we don't have any commercial ties with Frequency Therapeutics, nor with any other company for that matter. This episode is not meant to be promotional, but informative. Of course, we cannot yet know if the company's drug will work, because the hard data isn't there yet. But just the fact that there are companies like Frequency working on solutions is in itself heartening. And I think we could all use some hope. All right. Anyway, I will stop there and let you listen to the debrief. Jackson, um, what are your first impressions of the interview we had just now with Carl? I thought it was very optimistic. I think he met all of our questions with a lot of detail. I think he was was very positive uh, in terms of the direction that they're going. I think there was uh, maybe a little bit of confusion. I don't know if it was with the verbiage of of the question concerning the the native cell population numbers. I, I think that um, he kind of regarded it as almost a safety issue if if the support cells were to multiply. Whereas I was kind of trying to gear it towards a efficacy uh, question in terms of if somebody has a more devastated uh, native support cell population um is there any potential for some some kind of replication of those uh with with the induction of fx322 and i think he he answered it more in terms of um it has a favorable safety profile it doesn't maybe it doesn't like almost proliferate um dangerously almost like cancer is is kind of the kind of the way i interpreted it so yeah, that, that was really the only thing that I, I would have liked to have um, gone a li- little bit more into detail, but we had to we had to press on because we we had more important questions to get to and, and we weren't able to address two important ones. Um, so that's a, a bit regrettable. But um, other than that, I think it went went very well and it, it was pretty straightforward. It didn't get too into it didn't hammer us over the head with the science um i think he put it in a very conceivable terms yeah i I think well for completely layperson it it's probably a little bit heavy on the science still but um even though he explained things very clearly so but but we'll try to clarify a bit more in our, our debrief for the listeners but yeah we we did have limited time of course that that happens when you interview busy corporate executives um so what were actually the burning questions that uh that you didn't get to ask this one goes out to our hypercusis community we didn't i'm sorry we didn't get to address as to whether or not fx322 could address pain and or loudness hyperacusis um the reason that i kind of put this 
on on the back burner it wasn't a conscious decision i didn't have like some questions just in my pocket where i was like okay those (laughs) those are the ones that are gonna go but as i as i scanned the interview paper um the they really i don't think they really had any way of answering this like appropriately that would give us any any sort of satisfaction because it's not in their secondary outcome measures it's unfortunate that hyperacusis is so poorly understood but um i don't i don't think that there's anything that they could have spoken to um although dr labelle mentioned that he he would be willing to to speak with us again so so we'll hopefully have an opportunity to address this especially upon release of of phase two trials so um just hang tight i know i know the hyperacusis uh, situation is sometimes worse than the tinnitus population, and that's originally the way the the way that mine was. I was had absolutely horrible hyperacusis after the the airbag blew up in my ear, but um, and that's ultimately what what led to the tinnitus. But um, so I I know how bad hyperacusis can be. So I, I feel for you guys. I, um, I I wish I could have gotten to this, but I promise we'll get to it next time. All right. And what was the other the other question? There were actually there were there were two more. Um there was um the Estella's plan for international clinical trials and drug release. We didn't know if they were gonna combine them uh for, for phase three so that they could get um concurrent release in in Europe and the USA. And then there was, has the outbreak of COVID-19 significantly affected the, the conduction of trials and release timelines? And I think that they, not only do they touch on that with their fireside chats, and they, they do a lot with um, keeping people to date on on what their plans are, where they are. Yeah, I was going to say, because I've, well, regarding the COVID thing, I, I listened to a couple of their recent you know, webinars or, or broadcasts, and I think they did communicate about that extensively. So, but maybe you can summarize it for our listeners. So, COVID hasn't really affected um, frequencies approach as much as it possibly is affecting other methods, uh, other companies, because they their their trials are conducted in actual ENT clinics. Um, their their patient population is is more ready, more available. They've they've had uh, a little bit of a hiccup in terms of new patients being admitted to the trials, but it's not like all of their progress has been been, been halted. So I decided to put that on the back burner because we could just touch that uh, touch on that here. Was there anything really that you learned that you didn't yet know about? I think uh, I, I knew the stuff about the stomach lining. I knew the stuff about the origin. I'm glad he um, touched on the patient testimonials because that was that was a, a hard one for me. It was it was not an outcome that they were measuring, so it could have been one that that he he would have dodged and said, "Well, we didn't measure anything." But he he openly answered that uh, there was there was some some am- anecdotes that that hadn't been hadn't been monitored. So it was it was nice that he, he could give us a lift. Yeah, right. It, it, there's no real hard data. They didn't measure anything, but they did hear informally that tinnitus might have been affected for some. And we, again, so then we don't know any more details than that. But, well, I'm very happy that uh, 
you were doing the interview with me, Jackson, and were able to cover these more technical issues that um, I didn't feel well positioned to. It it was it was nice for a change not to be the only interviewer. And I have to say, you you're a natural. You did uh, splendidly. Well, I really appreciate that. Uh, I think everything was set up for my success. So I, I really appreciate the lengths that you guys went to to ensure that we had proper audio quality, that Squadcast was working. Um, so so again, thank you both for that. It was really a privilege to be on here. And I, I really appreciate you guys taking all the time to sort out the technical side, especially being international with um, dealing with, you know, in America and in, in Ohio and Akron's uh, recording studio. I'm glad that everything went smoothly. I'm glad that we got out the the questions that we needed to, that it wasn't too much too too much stress on my side at all. I just had to show up and everything was, it was set up for success. So I appreciate that. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be on the front lines of, you know, very important, um, very positive information because we all need it in a time like this. Absolutely, yeah. And you got a little taste of podcasting in the process as well. That's right. So I'm ready for round two whenever. Yes, they did uh, agree to that. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you for having me on again. And uh, yeah, I'll be uh, waiting in the wings. I'm sorry I'm not as much of a presence uh, online anymore. I've uh, been dealing with uh, side effects from medication that is less than um, ideal because of the tinnitus that I have to take the medication. So been doing everything I can just to get through the day. And uh, right now it's kind of at that point where we've reached kind of that information apex where I think I, I pretty much know ultimately like what I need to know, especially after this interview um, where I, I don't, I don't even know if I, I'd be able to add anything to the discourse and it's, it's tough seeing, seeing a new newcomer come in and, and struggle and knowing that, that I, I've been there and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's tough to, to get back on there, but I still peruse it every now and then. So um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry to hear that you've been struggling and of course uh, everyone understands if you have to focus your energies elsewhere, but we do also always really appreciate people like you, more experienced people sticking around to like advise and inform and, and support others so um we appreciate you being around yeah absolutely if anybody has any questions or anything um my name is mr brightside 614 on the uh on the forum oh yeah i don't want to thank fgg for being on the call with me to to add crucial bits of intel such as we're running out of time <laughs> and uh making my heart race a little bit more but no she was uh she's great we built such a relationship um because of this project that we were on creating the questions and uh she she braved the trip uh even through her her visual snow and e everything that she has to deal with so i'm really happy to have her here it's really great that she made the what is it eight hour trip and um it's always great to hear about Tinnitus Talk members meeting up in person and striking up relationships, friendships, etc. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, we're we're all we got. <laughs> Honestly, it feels like. That's why Marku started this whole thing and why we put so much time and energy into it. I mean, there's many reasons, of course, but that personal support element, that's how it all started, right? 
Yeah, people just don't realize it unless they have a, a, a moderate to severe version themselves that it can just, you know, devastate people. So Derail your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Glad, glad to be here. Glad to have you guys. Glad to have the community. Give me a shout out if you need to. I'll, I'll try to get, get around to it and uh, keep you abreast of, of how my situation develops. And hopefully, yeah, I eventually get on the healing road. I don't know if <laughs> that's going to happen. but Yeah. Fingers crossed. All right. Thanks, Jackson. Um, debriefing a little bit further on the Frequency Therapeutics interview, I'm joined here by another one of our Tinnitus Talk members. Her username on the forum is FGG. She is very knowledgeable on uh, hearing in general and specifically hearing regeneration techniques. And we thought it might be useful to chat with her a bit um, and get a bit more background on, you know, some of the technical parts that were discussed during the interview with Carl. During the interview, we didn't really have time to explain all the technical terms to people who are not familiar with them. So hopefully FGG can um, can provide us with a bit more insight. Uh, welcome. Thank you. I'll do my best to explain. Yeah, so where should we start? Um, can you try to explain in lay terms how FX322 works? Because we heard terms like progenitor, cells support cells yeah what what are those like can can you try to put it as as simply as possible sure i think dr labelle did an amazing job um kind of going over that um but trying to simplify it even further um progenitor cells are sort of like a stem cell that's further along the path um towards becoming uh the final cell and uh what the drug does is it stimulates a population of these progenitor cells in the cochlea to produce hair cells. Uh, this was based on, um, as he said, uh, a similar population in the intestines that replenished intestinal cells um, with a very high turnover rate. So they know the potential of these cells to regenerate was very high. Uh, and they did, by chance, find these same cells in the cochlea, and the drug is designed to stimulate them in a way to produce uh, the target cells in the cochlea, which in this case is hair cells. Right. So if these proge- progenitor cells are stimulating new hair cells to grow, what like source materials is it using? That is it like turning existing cells into hair cells or how does that work? Sort of. And one of the key differences between frequencies approach and others is that it takes these progenitor cells and it asymmetrically divides them. So normally when you have a cell divide, you have two equal parts. And um, in this case, you have uh, one of those daughter cells, one of those parts becoming another support cell, so replacing the one that was lost. And then you have the other daughter cell um, becoming a hair cell. All right. And and why is that thought to be a better approach or what's the theory behind that? Well, he he touched on this and he said that uh, when you transduce a cell, which means you make a cell into another cell versus stimulate it to divide, um, when you transduce a cell, you don't make an exact uh, product of what you need, product for lack of a better word, of what you need. So you're basically taking a support cell and making um, and retrofitting it into a hair cell, whereas in this approach, you're going further back. And you're making um, a brand new hair cell as well as a brand new support cell. 
All right. And the theory is that that would work better than trying to turn an existing cell into something it was never really meant to do. Yes. Um, it's basically starting from scratch and developing into a cell um, versus turning another cell and kind of retrofitting it as best as possible into a hair cell. All right. Okay. Carl also talked a lot about delivery methods and the importance of getting the drug to to the cochlea correctly and then to the correct parts of the cochlea. Can you explain a bit more to our less informed listeners why that's so important? He didn't go into to quite the detail that I would need to fully answer that question. Um, but what he did say is that uh, their gel becomes a state in the middle ear that will better diffuse across the um, the round window into the cochlea. Um, and so this delivery um, results in a higher concentration than, say, oral methods. Um, that's why it's very important to use the injection, the intratympanic method, where they take a needle and go through the eardrum and they deliver the drug locally. Right. So, so that is a key distinction, delivering it locally versus taking a pill that you don't really know if it really reaches the place where it should be. Right. Um, so oral methods definitely reach the cochlea in at least some concentration. Um, that's why ototoxicity is a problem, mm -hmm. um, even with oral drugs. But if, if you need something in a greater amount, um, local delivery is obviously superior. And can you talk a bit about the different parts of the cochlea and um, how, you know, it's important that we know which parts are, are, are targeted what was great is he actually answered something that's been um, kind of discussed back and forth on the frequency thread a lot, which is, does this do outer as well as inner hair cells? Um, and he said it does whatever's needed, which is great, um, because there's no real diagnostic uh, test, I'm sorry, no diagnostic test for inner hair cell loss that's reliable. So, um, so structurally, the cochlea has um, three rows of outer hair cells and one row of inner hair cells. Um, and we have each of those rows across all frequencies. So from high to low, you have these triple layer of outer hair cells, and, and below that, you have these inner hair cells. And outer hair cells um, have a little bit of a functional difference. They kind of amplify noise. That's why an audiogram is useful when you're deciding whether you lost outer hair cells, because um, it takes a quiet sound, a low vibration, and amplifies it. Um, so if you can hear, say, at 10 decibels, then you have good function of your outer hair cells. But if you need, if you have less of them and you need louder sounds to stimulate the outer hair cells because you have less of them, that's why an audiogram tells you a lot about outer hair cell loss. Below that, you have the inner hair cell loss, which is what directly synapses with the auditory nerve. So it takes the signal and kind of translates it to the nerve. Um, and when we were talking about cochlear synaptopathy, um, which is basically um, a problem with the synapses in the cochlea. And the synapse is a, is a nerve connection. That's the inner hair cell connecting to the ganglion um, that ultimately leads to the auditory nerve. All right. So they, they clarified that their drug targets uh, both the inner and, and outer hair cells. And yes. Why was it important for you to understand that? And, and what does it mean if only one or the other is, is targeted? What is the difference in terms of the result that one would experience? Well, especially for tinnitus, they don't know whether it's an, in it individual, whether it's an outer hair cell or inner hair cell problem. They know the signal at some point is disrupted. Um, and without knowing what's damaged, um, if it, say, only worked on outer hair cells and you had inner hair cell damage, you may not get the results that you want. 
in terms of hearing, um, when you have inner hair cell loss, that contributes to things like speech and noise um, difficulties because you, you don't have the normal connection with that synapse. They're still working out exactly what each component does in terms of its contribution to hearing, but inner hair cell transmit the signal. So you um, you definitely need it functioning for, quote, normal hearing. Um, so it's important too. Carl also um, talked quite a bit about the importance of clarity of hearing. So, and and um, this seemed to imply that, you know, rather than using traditional hearing tests, it's better to use some kind of test that that actually measures how well someone can hear in different types of situations and how well they can make out speech. Why is that important? And, and why are the traditional tests not suited for that? Well, the traditional tests only go up to 8,000 hertz, um, which is kind of based on the fact that hearing aids cover that range. So that's traditionally where they stopped because that was the only treatment for hearing loss. So there wasn't really a value, at least therapeutically, in testing for more. Um, but as as he pointed out, the difference between chore and shore um, when you're doing the word score does depend on those higher frequencies as well. And so they're they're taking the initiative to measure them because they have a drug that they think targets those very, very well. Is this what they mean when they talk about hidden hearing loss or is that something else? That's something else. So this is word score. Hidden hearing loss is um, speech and noise difficulty classically. Um, although pe- people use the term different ways, but classically it's what they call cochlear synaptopathy, um, which is a condition where you have connections, but you have less of them than you should, which makes it harder to filter out unwanted noise um, and hear clearly. And I believe that also has to do with the the auditory nerve and not just the hair cells, correct? It has to do with the inner hair cell connection to the nerve All right. through the spiral ganglion. So kind of both. Um, but what he was saying um, is that Potentially, when you regenerate the inner hair cell, those connections, just like when you're in the third trimester, um, start to reform. And say you have a inner hair cell damage problem, you can regenerate that hair cell and thus regenerate the neuro connections. So in those specific situations, it can also help cochlear synaptopathy. Great. Thanks, FGG, for for explaining all that uh, uh, so clearly. Was there anything... um that you heard during the interview that you found particularly interesting? I liked hearing uh, that they had maybe some anecdotes for tinnitus because I know that they they weren't measuring it in phase one, so they didn't have the hard data. But just knowing that they had maybe testimonials is is very heartening uh, for sure. The thing that I guess uh, meant the most to me, well, two things. One is that ototoxicity was not excluded, which, of course, in my case... Uh, it was very good to hear. I'm sort of hanging on a thread, <laughs> hoping for something that'll help. Uh, and that was that was very, very important to me personally, obviously. Uh, and then in general, the compassionate use uh, answer was was really important. Um, the fact that they they are willing to revisit that based on the phase two data uh, was really wonderful to hear because, you know, it means that they are interested in getting this out to people, helping people as quickly as possible, especially for people who may not qualify for the trials. Um, I, I, you know, of course, emotionally, I just want to get, get anything that'll help as soon as possible. Uh, and just knowing that there's something I can try that maybe, maybe it's available soon. It was very good to hear. Yeah, I'm sure that sentiment is uh, shared by many. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for making the trip. I understood you drove eight hours to be able to join us. Eight hours. Yep. 
Yeah, uh, in spite of um, your struggles with tinnitus and I believe also visual snow. Yep. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad I could do it. Yeah, and and thank you also for explaining uh, some of the technical bits for those of us, uh, including myself, who are uh, less informed on such matters. Um, well, of course. I, you know, <laughs> I hope it was clear.